Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast this week, Andrew Greystone, to talk about his new book, Bleeding for Jesus, John Smythe and the Cult of the Ewan Camps. It's published by Darton, Longman and Todd and is available from the Church House Bookshop. In a review of the book in the 1st of October issue of the Church Times, Andrew Brown says that Andrew Greystone has done a wonderful job in excavating a ghastly piece of the Church of England's history. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much, Ed. Um, Now, our our readers will have, um, I'm sure, read quite a lot about the story of John Smythe. But I was wondering if you could give us some background first to, to go right back to how you became involved in this story. Sure. John Smythe was a Christian barrister who was operating... Uh, in uh, London and out of his home in Winchester in the 1970s and the beginning of the 1980s. He was um, quite a high profile figure in Christian circles, partly because he was the go-to barrister for Mary Whitehouse and so was involved in some high profile trials over uh, issues like uh, blasphemy and was part of a kind of, um, yeah, a fairly conservative moralizing wing of the Christian church. What most people didn't know was that at the same time that he was doing those trials with Mary Whitehouse in London, he was going home to his home in Winchester and grooming and then beating um, young men, um, firstly from Winchester College and then from various universities who he'd met through the Ewan Camps movement. And when I say beating them, I'm not talking about a kind of boarding school, six of the best. I'm talking about, in some cases, beating people, lashing lashing people hundreds of times uh, until they bled as part of a what he saw as a discipleship or presented as a discipleship programme. And then just briefly, when, the, um, uh, when that emerged, became known within the UN network, in 1982, um, steps were taken to sort of hustle him out of the country. And he, a couple of years later, moved to Zimbabwe, where, as the book tells you, he set up a, a, another um, camping organisation and uh, continued to beat, this time, uh, much younger uh, children and in much greater numbers. Uh, when eventually eventually that was uncovered by a group of pastors in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, um, he was helped to flee the country again and went to South Africa, where he lived and continued to abuse young people right up to his death in 2018. Um, Now, I got involved in that because the Ewan Trust, which ran the Ewan camps, eventually handed over work to Titus Trust, and um, the Titus Trust received a disclosure of uh, abuse in 2012 and one way or another asked me to help them uh, to to deal with the public fallout of it. So I made some recommendations to them that involved having a full investigation and uh, going to the police with what needed to be taken to the police uh, and so on, but they chose not to do that, um, but to continue to deal with it in-house, uh, uh, largely in-house. 
and uh, eventually I I was left with all this information and thinking this needs to come out for the sake of those uh, young men um, or not least for the sake of young people in South Africa who might still have been being abused so uh, I worked with Channel 4 News to tell that story way back in 2017 and since then I've been walking with a number of those guys who were victims of John Smythe um, uh, and it's really at their request as much as anything that I've written this book. Just to go back to, to you and camps just for those who aren't familiar I mean these are um, camps during the school holidays for sorry, were or are for pupils from the elite boarding schools in Britain. Yeah. The, the Ewan camps themselves took place across, uh, across the summer holidays and Easter and Christmas holidays as well. And um, they were a very elite group. Um, you had to belong to not just any old boarding school, but one of the very top boarding schools and being invited to them. And uh, the camps were the focus of a discipleship program that went through the year with um, intensive mentoring through school and university Christian unions and through one-to-one discipleship relationships and that's a model that still continues to this day although now it's run by the Titus Trust. Mm. Ask us a bit about your, the research for your book and, and the information you use I mean it contains I mean, you, you have you had access to documents but you also interviewed survivors. Yes I've, I've met with and interviewed a lot of uh, John Smythe survivors and um, also been to Zimbabwe and South Africa to meet uh, those who worked with him there and the pastors who tried to stop him and some of the um, children who he abused there. And I've also, in the course of research, had access to court documents and um, uh, reports and a a lot of other... um, material um, and also been able to speak to some members of John Smythe's family as well and and, and um, so I've drawn on a very wide range of sources to produce really quite a detailed account of uh, of what has happened but I've tried to um, weave it together into a narrative that makes sense and is it's more than just a life of John Smythe um, the intention is that it should also serve the church as a bit of a study in how spiritual abuse can happen so I hope that people read the book will not just be you know horrified although they will be horrified by uh, the, the ways that this man treated young men and children but I hope they will also reflect on the ways that um, cultures within the church sometimes enable abuse to happen you talk about spiritual abuse i mean it comes through in the book clearly that he was he had a, a spiritual rationale for his use about discipleship and he was using scripture to who do you give us a sense of some of the ways in which he used the bible and, and his position as someone in authority to commit this abuse yeah he um he would he was very keen on Uh, Bible verses that talked about fathers and the need for fathers to discipline their children and he would particularly look for young people whose relationship with their own fathers was 
um, was distant or, or difficult. And of course, boarding schools, elite boarding schools were quite a good uh, place to look for that. Um, likewise in Zimbabwe, a lot of, um, he, he managed to encounter a lot of young uh, children as young as 11 and 12, who um, whose relationship with their own fathers was quite distant. And he exploited this longing for fatherhood that um, people had. Um, and he would say, in terms, he would say, you know, God is your father, but he, God can't be your father on earth because God is your father in heaven. So I will be your father on earth. And as a good father, I will discipline you. And what you need in order to be set right with God is um, uh, to accept discipline. Um, it, was a, it was a corruption of conservative evangelical theology. And I don't want to emphasize that it is a corruption because, you know, most conservative evangelicals would be horrified by that kind of behavior or the use of the Bible in that way. Uh, so it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a clear misstep, but it's not a very big misstep to say, to move from um, Jesus bled and died for you to saying, you need to bleed for Jesus. It's a crucial misstep, but it's not a very big one. And the culture that he was operating in made it um, a manageable step. Can I ask about the, the title of the book, particularly the phrase, the, the cult of the Ewan camp? Um, and I know this is something you write about in the book. And I know not everyone agrees with that definition of, of, of Ewan. Could you explain why you choose to use that term of it? Yes, I mean, the word cult is a, uh, an unusual one in a way because there isn't, amongst sociologists, an accepted definition of what a, a cult is. People will talk about new religious movements or coercive religious movements, um, but there are some recognisable signs of what a cult is, and I see them reflected in the Ewan movement, in John Smythe's behaviour, but also in the wider behaviour of the Ewan um, movement. For example, um, there is very often the cult of the, of the big man, the, uh, the, the distinctive, powerful leader that everyone looks up to, and that person has some kind of almost Gnostic um, uh, access to the truth. So nobody would ever question what some of these big Ewan leaders preached. Um, and if you went to a Ewan talk, you wouldn't have time for questions at the end because um, it, was, it was all about the expression of the truth. Um, there, are, there are three three kind of themes that work through cults, three stages in belonging to a cult. Um, there is conversion, the sense that you are asked to give up everything, including all your family relationships or loyalties, um, uh, plans, prospects, gifts, skills, whatever, and convert to um, a new mode of thinking, an entirely new mode of thinking. And that was, was and is very much part of the Ewan mindset. And then there's, uh, after conversion, there's a sense of conditioning. There's um, a schooling within a particular way of thinking. And that conditioning is held in place by some strange things like um, 
costumes you know all cults have things that you're allowed to wear and not wear and on you and camps there were things that you were or weren't allowed to wear no khaki shorts uh, uh on you and camps or when i was at university all the you and women would wear wear um laura ashley blouses and uh guernsey jumpers and pearls there was a, a uniform that said you were in so there was a kind of um a conditioning to belonging into belonging in this network and then following on from conversion and conditioning, there was a coercion that said, there is no future for you outside this network. And if you ask questions or you divert in any, uh, any way at all, you can't belong with us anymore. You're out. Um, so for a lot of people, once their whole identity has been formed by the network, there really is no way out there's no other way there's no other place to go people who fall out of that network um, often find it very difficult to know who they are anymore or where where they belong and that that re remains the case in, in in some parts of that network i think cult is i mean cult is a shorthand word it's not a very technical word uh, but people do tend to know um, what it means. One of the interesting things about cults generally is that we sometimes feel that cults probably play on the kind of slightly weak-minded or persuadable people. But actually, if you look at the history of cults, things like the, the, um, the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas, they were recruiting the most intelligent, most committed uh, people, in that case, Pentecostal Christians from the UK and America and saying, if you were really committed, if you want to really take this through, if you want to be really sincere, just take this extra step and join our movement. And that's something I see in the Ewan movement, a sense that, yeah, you know, the Church of England or the other churches, are, they're fine. But if you want to be really committed and really part of the, uh, uh, the truth, you, you need to join our movement. Um, Nobody recognises that, of course, because nobody ever thinks they're part of a cult. People who are in a cult don't think they're, they're in a cult. They think they found the one true meaning of life. And there's a trajectory, I think, wasn't there? You see with going to sort of Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, from these elite boarding schools, Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, to their intercollegiate Christian unions, and then probably on to, and I'm generalising, probably on to a, um, you know, apprenticeship or ministry internship yep. at a church and then ordination at one of the approved theological colleges and then a curacy at one of the kind of approved conservative evangelical churches there's a clear sort of map for these people to direct there, their there lives was, and there, are, there are many people in the church of england now who, who've followed that trajectory entirely and there are a large number of churches some of the biggest churches in in the, the bigger cities who have only had you and alumni in ministry for a generation since, since since the war um it's almost like a church within a church except that quite often the the ewan churches don't really recognize that the other churches have authority anyway so it's a kind of uh, pure uh network within what they would see as an otherwise fairly compromised church and, okay. and of course the key areas of compromise historically have been about um, the place of women in leadership or 
the acceptability of homosexual practice, which are the things that, some of the core things that have marked out that movement from others. And obviously it's been written about in, in your book and, and in the press about um, Archbishop Welby's connection with um, the Ewan camps. Yeah, he, he said he only knew John Smythe superficially and he was not part of his social or inner circles. Yes. Um, uh, Archbishop Welby w- did attend um, Ewan camps in the early days of his Christian faith. He be- became a Christian uh, really through the University of Christian Union at Cambridge, but then went on to attend Ewan camps for a few years and became what's known as a junior officer. Um, gave some of the evening talks at um, camps, but it's fair to say that I don't think he was ever in the inner circle um, of the network. And after a while, um, he had a, a more charismatic experience, which took him into other churches um, that probably would have been frowned upon by Ewan. Although he did go back to um, uh, Ewan Camp's um, when he was uh, an ordinand at Theological College in 1989 and 1990 and uh, 91. Um, so he had a, the Archbishop has had a, a kind of long-standing association with the camps, but I don't think it would be fair to describe him as part of the inner circle. And he would have run into John Smythe uh, at camps. And we know that he visited his house at least once, but, but I, I wouldn't. It wouldn't be fair to say that he was a friend. Um, he was just another part of that network. I think one of the key things, though, is that because of his relationship with Ewan, Archbishop Justin did understand that and does understand that network and can identify it and knows what its place in the Church of England is. Um, in terms of the specifics of what Archbishop Justin knew about John Smythe, he's been he's been very coy uh, since this came to light in 2017. Perhaps because he didn't remember all that much, but um, uh, but perhaps because he didn't want to be too closely associated. And we do know that way back as far as 1983, um, when the Ewan Network were issuing sort of general warnings in a gentlemanly tone about John Smythe, that one of those general warnings did reach Archbishop Justin when he was living in in Paris, but it would have been in very general terms, oh, this is not a good chap, we shouldn't, he's not part of our network anymore, we shouldn't have anything to do with him. The point where Archbishop Justin gets um, more definitely involved in the in the story is in uh, July of 2013, when one of the victims of John Smythe made a complaint, first of all, to a parish priest in Cambridge, and then that was passed on to the Diocese of Ely. And then that um, complaint in some detail was sent to Archbishop Justin. And um, although in the early days of the exposure of John Smythe, Archbishop Justin said that he had been very diligent in following up what happened to that complaint. As time has gone on, it's emerged that actually he did very little at all um, because he felt it was the job of the Bishop of Ely to follow it up. 
So some survivors of John Smythe complain quite bitterly that uh, when Justin Welby heard about this in 2013, when he had information about what John Smythe had been doing and was continuing to do, it should at least have rung loud bells for him because he knew this man and he knew the network. And so he should perhaps have done more at that stage or could have done more to prevent Smythe's ongoing abuse. Now we know that John Smythe continued to abuse young people for another five years after that. Um, Archbishop Welby wasn't the only bishop who knew at that stage. By the end of 2013, six bishops knew what John Smythe had been doing and that he was still at large. None of them took appropriate action. And none of them have faced any um, proper disciplinary measures from the church. They're all still in post. It becomes difficult for the Archbishop or the church as a whole to say, um, if you know about abuse, you must report it and we will deal with it. When there are all these six bishops in post who knew about abuse and didn't deal with it. There are always good reasons, but those are, those are the sheer facts. And survivors of, of John Smythe have met um, with Archbishop Welby. I think that took some time to come about, did it? But what, what have they told you that you were able to say about, about the meeting and how, how they feel yeah. about, about it? That's right. There was a meeting. Um, there had been requests for a very long time from some of the survivors of John Smythe to meet with uh, Archbishop Welby and to ask him what he knew and what he'd done about it and what he was going to do about it now. Um, and uh, he agreed to meet, but then that meeting took, um, I think, about four years to organise. It took place online um, earlier on this year, in the spring of, of, of this year. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, at that meeting, there, was, there, was, there were some more revelations about what Archbishop Welby had known, but... Um, there's still a good deal of dissatisfaction about what the church as a whole did or or is doing um, about John Smythe. Of course, Smythe died in 2018, so um, possibility the possibility of him facing justice in the in any kind of earthly sense was lost during that period. If more had been done he would have died in prison without a doubt. Can I ask a little bit about some of the reactions to the book? Because a few of the, of the individuals um, you, in the Ewan network who you wrote about have, have responded in public, um, including the Reverend Alistair Payne, who's now the Vicar of St Andrew the Great in Cambridge. Um, and he, his, one, one of his um, issues was that he said you didn't contact him to ask for permission to identify him as a survivor or to tell his story. Um, I mean, what, what is your response to, to that criticism? Yes, um, I mean, I, f I feel very sorry for um, Alistair Payne, who was one of John Smythe's um, victims. Um, and one of his complaints is that I have exposed him as a, as, a, as a victim without his consent. I think that's an unfair complaint because um, he's already spoken to journalists uh, um, about it. Um, 
and in my fairly detailed research, it was widely known in evangelical circles that he was a victim of John Smythe. So I think the complaint that I have um, uh, been the one to expose that abuse is, is, is unfair. You can't, as it were, out somebody who's already out. Um, as to whether I should have spoken to him in advance, I, I'd thought about that very um, carefully, of course, and about how I approached all people from, who, who were part of the UN network or the Titus uh, Trust. Um, my feeling was that um, it's difficult to approach people whose loyalties are, else, are elsewhere. I wasn't at all clear that had I approached members of the UN Trust um, or, or Alistair Payne himself directly, that the reply would have been um, helpful. Of course, I wanted to hear directly what his experience and interpretation was, but as it happened, I had other sources that provided that information um, firsthand, even in, even in his own words. So I didn't, as it were, need to um, speak to him and didn't feel that his response was going to be that helpful. I was very keen, of course, that he should know about the book beforehand, that it wouldn't come as a, as a shock to him. And so made sure that he did know about it some months uh, ahead so that he could pr prepare for that. But um, I don't accept that I have put his name in the public domain because it, it clearly already was. I've been very careful with those victims whose identity is not in the public domain to make sure that they are protected. So I've only named people who have already named themselves or already kind of uh, known about. Others I've protected very carefully with, with uh, pseudonyms and there's also um, James Starman, I'd like to ask about him, who's, he, he published a, quite a lengthy statement online um, going through what he said were inaccuracies in the book. And we don't have time to go through every one because I think there's sort of more than 20, but I mean, broadly, is that something you're going to respond to or what, what, what's your view on that? I'm not really prepared to enter into um, uh, individual debates about in individual points in the book. Um, there are some areas that are just um, two people see things from different perspectives um, and uh, he's obviously entitled to his, his perspective on, on those things uh, uh, as I am. Um, I would say that I've been exceptionally careful in the way I've described things within the book. Um, am I going to say that there's not a single mistake? No, I already know. I'm aware of at least uh, one mistake, but nothing of any substance that I've um, discovered. And I, my, 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 I suppose my sadness about the response of of James Stileman is twofold. One is when Scripture Union published their report into John Smythe earlier on this year. The response from the UN network was, "We found some mistakes in this, therefore it can't be trusted." And the response. To my book has been exactly the same and I've no doubt that when Keith Makin the Church of England reviewer publishes his review next year or sometime the response will be the same oh we found three mistakes in this it can't be trusted um, 
what I would like the network to do is to look at what happened, look at what has happened to victims of abuse, um, reflect on that, reflect on the culture that allowed that to happen and not to be distracted by whether, as in one of Mr. Starman's criticisms, whether my meeting with him took place above a shop or above an office. Yeah. And I just think, actually, if that was the bit that worried you, you may have missed the point of the book. Can I just ask about the making review? Because this was the um, this is the yeah. independent review that's been commissioned by um, Keith Macon. And I mean, the Arch Archbishop of Canterbury said he's urged uh, Mr. Macon to make it as comprehensive and strong as it can be. Um, so I'm wondering what you and the, and the survivors you've been working with, um, I wonder whether you have confidence that it will be strong and comprehensive or what, what the feeling is about that review. Um, I, as far as I can tell, I've had some dealings with, with, with Keith Makin and of course I've um, made sure that he's got hold of um, the, uh, the, the, the book and um, I've answered any questions or trying to answer any questions that he might have. I would have preferred a statutory review rather than an internal lessons learned review, because although, as you say, it's independent in that um, he is independent, he, he's employed by the church and the review will be received by the church. And in all honesty, there's a succession of lessons learned reviews into instances of abuse in the church. And I fear that his might eventually just land on a shelf uh, with the others. I do think he's going about it in a in a thorough way, so thorough that it's already two years overdue and we don't have a date when it's going to be published. The other thing to bear in mind about the making review is, of course, it's only a review into whether the Church of England responded appropriately to disclosures of abuse. So it's quite limited in scope. For example, it's not going to look uh, currently anyway at all at John Smythe's activities in Africa, in Zimbabwe or, or South Africa, um, which was the majority of his abusing um, career. There are one or two uh, underlying dynamics to this that, that are worth noting. And one is the racial dynamic. Uh, the Ewan movement is overwhelmingly exclusivist British and white. It's never really made its way into other cultures at all. And there was a sense when John Smythe was sent to Zimbabwe that as long as he wasn't harming any English schoolboys, all, all would be well. I think it's unfortunate that the Church of England has chosen to frame its review in a way that it will only receive the experiences of white British um, people. Um, and of course, there's a dynamic of misogyny in this as well running through that movement so in some ways looking at the Ewan movement <sighs> helps you in the most painful ways to look at some of the issues that the Church of England overall is facing at the moment. I, I can just ask I, mean, I think one of your critics said you know you should have waited for the Macon review to be published rather than publishing your own book I mean did I guess perhaps you've answered in the, the scope of the making is much narrower than the scope of your book, but was there also a sense that you didn't want to wait for however many years that, or and survivors didn't, they wanted their story to be told sooner? Absolutely. Um, I, I'd considered waiting for the making review to come out. And to be honest, a point came, I think probably about a year ago now, where it looked as though that can have been kicked so far down the road that we needed to 
get on and get this um, uh, story told in in its entirety. And also, you know, I'm not a reviewer. I'm not a um, I'm I'm not a policeman. I'm a, a writer and a theologian. I bring a particular kind a kind of analysis to this that um, Keith Makin will bring a different um, uh, analysis to it. So we're, we're by no means doing the same job uh, at all. I could ask about the um, Titus Trust, um, just, just to clear up any confusion about the link between the Titus Trust and the Ewan Trust, but also, I mean, it's the Titus Trust, isn't it, who've been responding um, and given a sort of timeline of what, what they say they knew and when, and they said they made mistakes, but they deny there has been any cover-up on their part. What's, what's your view on that? Yeah, it's complicated. Um, uh, the, the Titus Trust, uh, uh, clearly I've dealt with the Titus Trust in one way or another for the last uh, four or five years um, or more uh, over this. Um, the Titus Trust have wanted to deny that, um, that they are continuous with the Ewan Trust. They took over the work of the Ewan Trust and its name and very much its culture and its staff when the Titus Trust was formed towards the end of the millennium, but they wanted to deny that there was a, a direct link. And they've also at the same time, curiously wanted to deny that the Ewan Trust ran the Ewan camps. They wanted to say that Scripture Union ran the Ewan camps. Um, I'm not sure why the Titus Trust is so bothered about who ran the Ewan camps if they don't think that they're continuous anyway. Within that whole network, there is a long history of covering this up. There's also a long history of abuse. Now, I'm aware of within that network of six or seven people um, who have been through police investigations um, in, in, in relation to uh, abuse or against whom there are complaints um, uh, uh, still open. Um, so are they the most trustworthy people to deal with? I've, I've, I've found them very difficult to deal with. I wrote, um, bef long before there was any idea of writing a book, I wrote individually to every trustee of the Titus Trust more than once to ask them to engage with survivors um, properly, to, to provide information, provide support for them. And time and again, they blanked not only me, but the survivors as well. Um, if you ask about what happened within the Titus Trust once the disclosures came about, in 2013-2014, well, the disclosures came to uh, two or three of the trustees who then chose to deal with them themselves without um, uh, sharing the information with the other Titus trustees. So there was 18 months between um, the disclosure um, uh, of abuse in Ely Diocese and the Titus trustees knowing about it. Um, that seems to me to be an unacceptable way of, act, uh, of acting. Um, one of the most shocking aspects of all of this is that 
when the uh, chair, when Giles Rawlinson became the chair of the Titus Trust, he was given a sealed A5 envelope by his predecessor with a message saying, this is about John Smythe, open it when you need to, when the time comes. And this envelope, which contained vast amounts of detail about John Smythe's abuse that had been known within the Ewan Trust for 30 years, this envelope lay unopened in his attic for all of that time until in 2014, they decided uh, uh, to open it, even when they'd opened it and it contained what was known as the Ruston Report, which is a comprehensive report into John Smythe's abuse. Even then there was a long delay before it was taken to the trustees of the Titus Trust. So my sense is that the Titus trustees from 2014 onwards did the minimum that they could possibly do um, and did it in as, as circumspect a way as they could. Now, there's been an almost in complete change of trustees now. The trustees of the Titus Trust today are not the same people as the trustees of the Titus Trust even in 2014. Um, so things may have May well have changed um, and the Titus Trust today may have a different approach in fact they've been you know relatively open when they knew that my book was coming out they published a, a, a fairly comprehensive timeline of what they knew um, so that the current trustees have been relatively open and I, I, mean, I have nothing against them I don't I don't know them at all um, and the Ewan camps have stopped running in the form that they did, or have they been merged with some other camps that are run by the Titus Trust? They've sort of been merged into other camps that are run by the uh, the Titus Trust, but they've stopped using the the name Ewan. Um, uh, although, bizarrely, um, when last year they couldn't hold camps because of the pandemic, they put a big video up on their website and the title of the video was, It's Still Ewan. And I just thought, I hope it's not. Um, but they clearly, they feel that the, the brand Ewan is now pretty fundamentally damaged. And that's fine. I would still like to hope that people who are involved in that network would read the book and think about the culture of the camps and the operation that they're running and the safeguarding risks that are involved in creating those kind of relationships and also about whether it's appropriate to run an evangelistic operation that is directed exclusively at the wealthiest and most privileged people in the country. I just still don't know how you square that with the understanding of the gospel of Jesus. Do you think the UN network still exerts the same influence over the C of E that it once did? I think it exerts a huge influence within the C of E. Um, I'm not sure that uh, it's got a stranglehold. Um, but you and churches remain very powerful in those dioceses where they uh, where they uh, exist. Um, they are 
um, some of the wealthiest churches and they it's still a, a still a strong cultural force within the church within the church of england without a doubt thank you for listening to this week's episode of the church times podcast you can find more news analysis comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk if you are not yet a subscriber to the church times you can try your first 10 issues for just 10 pounds you'll get the paper delivered to your door every friday plus full access to our website and digital archive go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more the music for this podcast was provided by sought after sounds tune in next friday for the next episode Thank you.